Hello, my name is Evelyn Cetus. I'm the Engagement Manager at RMIT. Today we're speaking with Bin Dixon Ward and Robin Phelan from the Bluestone Collection. The recent donation of the collection to RMIT is an important acquisition for the university and one with special relevance. I'd first like to acknowledge the people of the Wuwurrung and Buwurrung language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nations on whose unceded lands we conduct the business of the university. RMIT University respectfully acknowledges their ancestors and elders, past and present. RMIT also acknowledges the traditional custodians and the ancestors of the lands and waters across Australia we conduct our business. Well, if you think acquiring a significant art collection is only for the wealthy, think again. If you think leaving a philanthropic gift is beyond your reach, also think again. There is power in ordinary people coming together with an extraordinary vision to share their resources and build an important legacy. This is the story of the Bluestone Foundation, founded in 2010 by a group of craft supporters to build a collection that promotes contemporary Australian craft exhibition practice. It was always the intention to donate the works to a suitable institution once the Bluestone collection reached maturity after 10 years. The recent donation of the Bluestone collection to RMIT is particularly relevant RMIT has a long history in teaching craft disciplines and 13 of the artists represented in the Bluestone Collection are RMIT alumni, a further two are lecturers at the university. Ben Dixon, Ward and Robin Phelan are both artists. They're both from the Bluestone Collection and are both committed to fostering the innovation and exhibition of contemporary craft in Victoria throughout Australia. They both have a strong connection with RMIT. Ben Dixon Ward is a graduate of RMIT Golden Silversmithing and has exhibited in Australia, Europe and North America and is the recipient of several awards for her jewellery. Describing herself as a digital craftsperson, Ben develops her ideas into objects using the tools of 3D modelling software and 3D printing. Robin Phelan teaches at RMIT in the School of Fine Art where she is a candidate for a Master of Research. Her professional background is in visual arts education, museums, curation and management. Robin's practice engages with place and sight as inspiration. Welcome, Ben and Robin. Thank Hello. you. Thanks, Evelyn. <laughs> well, my first question is, how did the Bluestone Collection get its name? <laughs> I think well, that one's for you, Robin. Yes, <laughs> it is. It was a really hard task to find a name. I, I understand how bands have difficulty finding a name. So early foundation members, um, Kevin Murray and Roseanne Bartley and I and Fiona Hiscock, um, the idea of materiality of craft was um, as we're formulating what, what it was that we were going to collect. So the idea of what was Melbourne and really it's the, what we kept coming back to, Bluestone, Bluestone Collection. Um, we didn't really have any other options. <laughs> So it was pretty easy. Yes, the, you know we, you know the craft runs runs along the on the lanes. You know we we've all been to the lanes and contemporary art galleries, and um, you know we're tripping over bluestone cobblestones all the time. Yes, it's, it's lovely. Um, and the names you mentioned in that uh, foundation uh, group, they're all people who are um, strongly connected um, as as artists and um, um, uh, I would I'd say curators and critics and generally practitioners. And practitioners mm. as well. And Anna Davin was one of the early members too. So we had a range of practice. And, of course, Kevin and I knew each other from Craft Victoria where we worked. 
And in fact, Roseanne and Fiona were board members at Craft Victoria, so there's a link there as well. Sure. Well, um, as a foundation member, Robin, can you? Uh, I'm really interested in how, as makers and members of the craft community, what prompted you to actually engage in collecting and starting this collection? Yeah, it was a way of um, acknowledging that there wasn't a whole lot of collecting happening in our institutions. And to piggyback off that idea that collection wasn't happening and also there wasn't a lot a, a chance to have a lot of debate around what contemporary craft was and where else to do that other than by exhibiting. So a few of us got together. It took us about a year to work out what what it was going to be. We copied a little bit of the Flinders collection, but those collections are to do with making money. So very wealthy people put in quite a bit of money, um, often use a curator to acquire pieces and then they're sold off either to the membership. We knew that we didn't want to do that nor to put in a lot of money and we wanted to kind of fill the gaps and encourage new practice, contemporary ideas. Um, that is a risk perhaps for NGV to to acquire, for example. So um, that's where we are. And the key thing that we decided to do, and I ended up calling the old accountant from Craft Victoria, Kevin Nelson, and I said, we're doing this, what you know? What should we do? How should we structure it? And he said, incorporate. Make sure, go through consumer affairs, get a model rules and incorporate yourselves to protect your direction, directors and helps you make a structure on how it's going to work. And what are the, the ramifications then of being incorporated? Well, it ended up creating a key provocation, which is what I'm really interested in, is that this collection, even though we keep it at our homes, it then gets donated to an institution. So when you're incorporated, um, you're a non-for-profit. So we weren't just, we couldn't, we can't sell our assets, which is the work. Uh, it needs to go, if, say, for example, we were to to no longer exist, we would need to give our assets, the collection, to a like-minded association. And the outcome of that is to find someone to donate it to who would love and care and have, have this great access to contemporary craft that hasn't been collected. Wonderful. Um, so it's been a decade uh, since the collection began and yeah. in that time you've had new members come in. Ben, when did you come into the uh, Bluestone collection? I think maybe about five years ago. Um, I was invited to join by one of the current members of the time who I was sharing a studio with. From what, the way he was talking, I was really interested in the kind of um, accessibility and democracy of the, you know, the idea of the Bluestone collection and Robin's covered some of those things, like, you know, the annual contribution is very affordable for, you know, someone who's on an artist's salary, which, as we know, is generally or an average of 12000 a year. Um, and, you know, it's supporting other artists and encouraging exhibiting spaces to exhibit crafts by purchasing from those exhibitions. I think that, you know, you need to look quite carefully to find institutions that are kind of focused on exhibiting crafts and there's a small handful in Melbourne that do do that and of course then there's a wider range of you know artist initiated spaces and um, you know pop-up exhibitions and things like that but really we you know part of the Bluestone's objective is about 
building a market for craft and that means building the retail not just retailers but the galleries that are exhibiting craft work this is really interesting because um we you know, the media sort of talk about, um, you know, the power of, of purchasing and, you know, things like, you know, looking at ethical investments. Um, you know, this is an, an interesting um, idea on if you don't be a if you're not a patron yourself of, of these areas and supporting them in some way, um, how is that? How is that uh, then going to have a market? How is that craft practice going to, to flourish? Mm -hmm. So you have a huge impact then. Well, uh, well, our, our quantum of um, spending isn't huge but we hope that it is significant um you know i guess our annual spend robin would be somewhere in the five thousand dollar range something like that or oh, a bit a bit under but yeah. yes and sometimes um finance can shift across to the next year yeah. we're on yeah. empty at the moment so we're just waiting for the um the next lot of uh, fees to come in for this year yeah so it's not a massive amount of money but i think that um you know by spending in galleries, um, you know, that is sending a message that crafts are important and that galleries should continue to exhibit crafts. But it's also, I think, for um, the artists that whose work we purchase, um, you know, that's a, a line on a CV to be a part of a collection is, is an important, you know, aspect of somebody's um, career trajectory. And... It says to them that their work's important and, you know, what happens to the work, you know, in the long term in, in, in terms of the Bluestone collection, for it then to go into a significant institution like RMIT's collection really ups that um, status, I suppose, for the artist. And I think that when you are particularly, you know, early to mid-career, finding collectors and finding a place for your work is an ongoing battle and hopefully that that's what the collection can do for artists. Very much so. And Robin, you said, oh, it's, you know, not a huge amount a year, maybe 5000 but I don't think people... It, was that on one work? Because I don't think, you know, normally... On several works, or yes, mm. yeah, several works. Yeah, works probably range from about eight hundred dollars to maybe not much over two thousand usually. So it's about three works a year. Well, we've just had ten years, and yes. that was twenty-one works. Twenty-one. There we go. That's the so math. There's there's the maths on it. <laughs> yes. And um, I'm still thinking that a lot of people wouldn't go out and spend eight hundred dollars on a on an art piece. Um, you know that. Uh, to, to build a collection. So mm -hmm. I think that is uh, very, mm. as you said, significant. And as Robin said, that, you know, the big sort of more uh, investment-focused collections, you know, each of their members might be putting in 5000 a year yes. so that, you know, their quantums are much, much bigger. And, um, you know, so we're not in that league of collecting at all. So. Yeah, and there's an agenda about investment and hoping, you know, it gets the works then on those collections get put back on the market. Mm. You know, the the value for this collection for me is the debate and conversation that ha happens around it. So that first year where we were working out, because we were incorporated, we needed rules. What is it that we're acquiring? What is it that we value? We value that the, the um, artists, craftspeople are exhibiting, that they're adding debate, critical debate about what craft is via exhi exhibiting and us discussing it, um, saying something really important about materiality and... Um, 
Yeah, being involved in Melbourne, Victoria. So it's a, it's a Victorian-based collection you need to be exhibiting in Victoria. And so Ben talked really well about the, the benefit and the, the joy of being collected by, as a craftsperson. But the debate and um, discussion that we have ongoing at each meeting and via flurry of emails... Um, you know, justifying the champions who are, are choosing a work to acquire. Well, why? What's important? And it's hard to find that critique. And it falls across a lot of kind of areas. Like sometimes we might say, well, you know, this person is, you know, this artist has been exhibiting, you know, for a couple of years. They're, they've established an exhibition practice. They want to keep working as an artist. It's not their first graduation show work. Um, so... You know, and they're showing some, you know, thoughtfulness in terms of how they're working with their materials, or the, you know, the concept of their work and how the the materiality and the and that concept work together. It might be that they're a, a, a mid career artist who's um, taken a shift in direction, and so that what we acquire represents, you know, a change in their thinking or a development in their thinking. So, it's not that there's a set criteria um, as Robin said it, it kind of that evolves out of the discussion that we have between ourselves about the importance of a particular piece of work in, in that artist's career. So we're talking about craft works and all sorts of uh, pieces ceramic um, metal yeah, so, objects yeah so <laughs> the, the, the jewelry <laughs> yeah jewelry um, metal ceramics for sure, textiles. Mm -hmm. And we do collect, you know, it's a combination of all the things being in the right place at the right time. Who can get to the show? Who knows a show's going on? What money we have in the bank? Who can get to the opening? Who else can champion? So all these things mm. have to coincide and then an acquisition's made. It, it really is about being very, um, having an active participation in the arts, isn't it, what you're yeah, saying? absolutely. And, and the engagement, for me, the engagement with the other members of Bluestone has meant that I'm learning about, you know, art, art forms that I'm not familiar with. Like, I'm learning a lot from Robin about ceramics. Um, you know, I, my area is contemporary jewellery, so I've got a fair background in that, but... Um, ceramics and textiles are areas that I've not engaged with and I'm fascinated by you know things that come up because of those materials and and particular problems that artists have to solve and what the materials add to the kind of their thinking processes. Fascinating. The other members of the uh, the Bluestone collection I mean I know they must have an engagement with the arts but are they all working in the arts or? They're all connected they? in some way so some of the some of the other members are also practicing art or craftspeople. Um, some are more, I guess, their professional work life touches in the arts in some way, um, and you know this is you know part of their personal interest. They all have you know contributions to make in terms of the debate and and the um, discussion that we have in the purchasing process. Um, but, yeah, not everybody's a practising craftsperson. Mm, and it's interesting. We Early on we thought um, that we would have this really big membership and then, then we would have this sort of curatorial body that happens. But that didn't really happen. So, um... you know, it has evolved and I've seen this kind of evolve through various discussions about what we do about membership over the years and it really has evolved you know, to a collection of relationships between the me the membership and 
Um, so it needs to start with a relationship of some sort in order for those other relationships to endure. And I think having a massive mm. membership of, you know, 50 people or something like that, just, you know, people would drop off and that engagement wouldn't be nearly as... Um, as uh, intense. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's, it has a lovely fluid thing with all associations. You have new members in and a new energy comes and then you get this peak of, of activity mm. and then other people will drop back and it's just sort of ebbs and flows, hmm. which is really nice. Hmm. And a beautiful, that's a nice way to put it, that it's, it started with relationships, very yeah. definitely work relationships, and that's really how it has continued. Uh, um, people can um, join, but... You know, I suppose there's some requirements in terms of you yeah, know, we, whether what, they're accepted. What we in. do is um, we, when we're you know asking somebody to, we ask them to uh, tell us about why they would be interested and what contribution they might make. It's a quite a fluid process, and um, and then we make a formal invitation for them to join because they're they're joining the association, and you know by that uh, taking on the responsibilities of the the association. Um, when they do join. Now, one thing that really intrigued me is I'm thinking, okay, at the end of the 10 years, the collection is donated to an institution. What happens in the meantime? Where is the collection? Well, that's one of the one of the big <laughs> glorious things about the Bluestone Collection is that we keep it in our homes. Oh. And so what it means is that we um, the works need to... You know, they need to have a robustness about them because they are in domestic situations. You know, they're in people's lounge rooms and bedrooms and hopefully not their kitchens. But, you, you know, they're being lived with. And we, every six months or so, we bring them all in together and we have a swap meet and <laughs> swap them over. Yeah, they're works that are being lived with, which is a really, you know, they're not, they're not being kept in, you know, climate-controlled conditions they are living in the real world and, you know, the way that... And it's really nice having a piece... Like we, I had, you know, over the years, I've had several pieces in our lounge room at home and, you know, you're looking at them all the time. There it is next to the telly or whatever it is and it gives you time to reflect on it and kind of think about it in, you know, in a way that you wouldn't if you were just going to visit it in a gallery something very dynamic about um, living with with art, with craft. Um, yeah, and that knowing been, that you're living yes. with it for a, a certain amount of time and it nestles in with the other, other things in your collection. And um, uh, we've started an Instagram account recently, so we're encouraging shots of um, the, the works in domestic situations. So say this is my turn with, you know, Connie Agostino, and which is a recent acquisition that we've made. And um, actually I can take more... Um, less robust works now because my boys have grown up. <laughs> I was always a bit fearful with two say, rambunctious with a, boys. With a big dog with a large tail. <laughs> yes, yep, yes. Yep. <laughs> no. Yeah, so people take what they can, yes, yeah, yeah. and desire. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So you can say, look, I really hate that piece. I don't want it in my life. <laughs> and, you know, that's one of the beautiful things about this collection. Are there, there are pieces in there that you don't like necessarily, um, but it's interesting to engage with the process of how, why that was acquired and you might appreciate it for, um, you know, intellectual reasons but not aesthetic reasons or whatever. Mm. Um, 
And then there are pieces that you do love and feel particularly like I want, oh, yes, that was mine. I wish I would live with that all the time. <laughs> Actually, this raises a big debate that we have constantly have about, about jewellery is that jewellery is of the body and should be worn, but we have a rule that it, it's not to be, be worn. worn. Oh, that's a really interesting one. And it yes. comes back again and again and yeah, again. Yeah, it does. It's, well, it's a tricky one, I guess, because it's at its most vulnerable if you wear it out and, you know breaks or you lose an earring or something like that then um, it is particularly precarious Um, so yeah our our collecting rules around jewellery have kind of evolved as to pieces that are perhaps can be hung or shown like a small three-dimensional object or something like that yeah, there's um, quite a few objects in, mm. isn't there, amongst our jewellery mm. yeah. and gold and silver smithing. Yeah. Mm. yeah, this is really interesting. As you're talking about that, I imagine um, that people perhaps not familiar with contemporary jewellery uh, might wonder about that, um, because the obvious we all wear jewellery. The obvious thing is what you see in jewellery shops. You know, it's it's mm. you know made to be worn. It can be small, all of those sorts of things, and it is. Um, I guess the wonderful thing is about this collection. Um, which is the next stage which we're at now is where you release it, in fact, then into an institution so other people can see it Mm -hmm. and enjoy it, is exposing people to these amazing works. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something I'd like to talk about now, which is um, how did you decide to um, uh, donate the, the, the collection to RMIT? Well, we, as Robin said, we knew quite early on that we wanted to um, find a permanent home for the first 10 years of collecting. Um, so the process really started well, four or five years ago about talking to you know various institutions, curators and what have you about what would be the sort of constraints or um, what would they be looking for if we were to offer it and just trying to get a scope, a feel of what that might be. But if it was getting close to t- the 10 years, we're like, oh, we've got to do something about this, you know, get on to it. So we decided to hold an exhibition and invite all the collecting institutions that we could think of in Victoria to come along and have a look at the works. And from there we did that and from there we invited expressions of interest and... That's the process that we used, really. And it came down to RMIT. And I think the main reasons were that we felt that the collection, you know, through RMIT's role in teaching a lot of the folk and, you know, some of us are now teaching here at RMIT, you know, that relationship was very strong. And also RMIT's kind of obvious role in craft education Mm. and the fact that... RMIT has a a solid and ongoing exhibition program through the gallery and other spaces around the the campuses. And because it was a diverse collection that it fitted in kind of conceptually and in terms of form and material, those were the kind of thinking that we put together, Mm. I guess, in terms of why RMIT. Yeah, I'm so proud Thinking back all those years ago, we just gathered around my dining room table to nut all this out. And part of the constitution was you have to say what you're going to evaluate. And we decided we would evaluate as a rule at the 10-year point. So we picked up and then with this whole new, a whole lot of jewellers, including Vin, came in and had this space down at Docklands, perfect for an exhibition. So I invited 
um, institutions in and galleries, but also the um, makers as well to see the whole collection, the whole 21 pieces yeah. beautifully displayed at one, that one was, time. That was looked lovely. great. Yeah, and we had um, Alison Ingalls, who's um, uh, manages the curatorship program at Melbourne Uni, open open the event for us. And she made a really interesting observation in that, you know, just she was looking around the works and she said that what what stood out for her was that it was a collection that represented the collectors. And, um, it you know, it captures a period of time in Australian contemporary craft. She was also really kind of very interested in the kind of the the democratic nature of the way that the organisation was put together and the accessibility of collecting. So it was really nice to hear Alison's point of view about those sorts of things. So, yeah, that was a really nice kind of moment, I think, when we thought, oh, yeah, we've done this. Mm. This is fantastic. And, you know, the art, most of the artists that we'd collected were able to be there, which was a really nice moment because I think artists' work, you know, I know work, my work goes into a collection and you barely hear about it ever again. It disappears into some vault somewhere. <laughs> Maybe it gets a showing, you don't know. Um, so for them to be able to re-engage with it and to engage with, in it, with each other, I think was a, a really nice moment. Yeah, it was a great night. Mm. I think the wonderful thing about the Bluestone Collection being at a university, being at RMIT, is that we lend out the collection, mm. collections that we have as well, pieces. So it, it does mean that, as you said, those works that you felt were significant from that time period will be, you know, sort of, um, I guess, uh, uh, public for the curators, future people, um, you know, be able to make selections and mm. uh, and those sorts of loans mm. um, as well as internally through the mm. university. So it does give more exposure. Yes. yes. Mm. Which the fact that RIT is a researching institution is also really important in that, you know, these works become available to researchers um, whether it's uh, students who are researching particular craft techniques or whether it's um, kind of postgraduate research or even post postgraduate? <laughs> High degree. <laughs> Something like that. But, yeah, so that... And, you know, I know research is, a, a, you know, one of the activities of curatorial work as well. So that it, it does have that, you know, that relationship to ongoing knowledge development and, um, and historical knowledge development. Yeah, and research is about exploration and taking risks. And these works that we've acquired are challenging. You know, an institution would not take a risk in acquiring works like this. So they're not from really well. So one of the other criteria is that the, that the um, artist has not been acquired already in established yeah. collections. So, yeah, they're challenging, they're risky, exciting pieces. Yeah. Although it's interesting because a lot of the artists, since the Bluestone purchased their work, have been subsequently acquired mm. by National Gallery in various institutions around the country and overseas. So mm -hmm. they are now collected. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You're at the, uh, the forefront, which is, uh, which is great. I guess as, and I hate to use the term ordinary people because you're quite extraordinary in what you've been doing and um, as artists I always think artists are extraordinary anyway, is that you've, you know, done something that leaves a legacy already and it's going to be important for craft in Australia, for artists, but also for students, um, as you said, mm. for research, having this available to them, being able to see, I mean, 
the most amazing thing is to being able to see works in, you know, real Mm -hmm. (laughs) rather than virtual. But you don't get a sense of the materiality of how things are made unless you see the object. So at the beginning, was that something that you sort of thought about or reflected on that that the impact that this might have on, or maybe it's something that's evolved, on actually donating this collection? No, not at the very start. That donation idea only came up through incorporation. We were really interested in being kind of provocative and sort of poking institutions. Well, if you're not going to do it, we're acquiring and look at us. You know, us, you know, what we pay per year, we are going to inquire because we believe that this is important. You know, NGV, the Sicily and Colin Reed Craft Award, was no longer it had turned into a design award. Um, I did my postgraduate thesis on the state craft collection and, and understood the importance of that, and that had finally been dispersed out into the regions. So it was Im- important to have collection that was historical, and that's, and that's what it's ended up being. So it's that's really exciting. But no, initially it was about getting together, critiquing, um, talking, being active, encouraging exhibition, getting out to exhibitions. And I think, you know, in part, some of that, you know, the nuance of um, the research and opportunity for students and what have you to see the work did come through RMIT's um, proposal. And that's not something we expected, but mm. certainly were very delighted about. Mm. Now, Ben, your family also has a, a history of generous giving to RMIT. Um, can you just briefly tell us oh. about that? <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, my mother decided to uh, hand over the I family holiday home down at Dramana, which is popularly known as the Butterfly House. And she'd inherited that from my grandparents. And we lived with it and loved it for a very long time but had come to the point where we weren't, weren't using it, basically, and felt like it needed a new life. And Mum was very reluctant to sell it on the open market um, because she was... Well, we were aware that the house has architectural significance. It was designed by Chancellor and Patrick back in 1954 and uh, sort of represents kind of the height of Australian modernism, I think. And, you know, it's a fairly way out design for its time and what have you, and it was it's pretty much intact in terms of there's been no alterations, it's got the same furniture that my grandparents purchased when they bought it, it's got the same colour scheme, it has been painted a few times, but it's got the same colour scheme. Um, you know, the plantings that my grandmother did in the... 50s and 60s are still there so it's sort of a little time machine really you know it's even it still has the manky I think cutlery <laughs> that they would have taken from their house in town down to the beach house you know as you do as you do <laughs> and the odd you know odd mixture of glassware and crockery and stuff like that so as I said we were not feeling like we were able to give it the life it deserved and felt like it needed because of its architectural significance and its historical significance we felt like it needed it needed a a guardian in a sense and we uh, approached RMIT knowing its interest in design and architecture. Uh, Margaret Gardner was the vice-chancellor at the time and she basically said yes we'd be very interested (laughs) in taking it and 
So we were really pleased that RMIT had been able to not only take ownership of the house but also to look after it. They've uh, modernised some of the facilities so that the showers work. Um, <laughs> Indoor plumbing is always a great thing. Oh, that's right. I mean, they did sort of before, but, you know, you had to know how to trick it into working. Um, and so now it's used for a writers-in-residence program that's particularly lovely. It's a very small house, and what it means is that a writer can spend some time down there working on finishing their thesis or their novel or whatever it might be. And from what I understand, it's used quite regularly. And also, you know, one of the stories I've heard recently is that... Um, there's a, a group of neighbours that have kind of adopted the house and its visitors and people keep an eye on what's going on down there and it, I think that's really nice. And there's now a little Chancellor and Patrick um, group in Dramana where the house is, other people that own Chancellor and Patrick houses and they've all kind of come together around the Butterfly House and RMIT's <laughs> engagement with it, um, which is really nice. I think that, you know, that kind of community thing's great, but, you know, that's just a little side story. But that's right, we donated the, the house. It must have felt <clears throat> wonderful for the family to know that it was actually being used in a creative yeah, way as well. Yeah, I think so. Look, in, as I said, we weren't using it, and an unused house is a very sorry thing and um, we were fortunate in that all of us already had homes um, and you know it would have been great to have the money from the sale of it but I think that the the reward that we get from knowing that it's been used and that it has you know a role in in you know a creative life or creative lives um, is a better reward from than the sale of the house would have been um, and it, it kind of I see it as a bit of a kind of a legacy from my grandfather who was a bit of a... He, well, he was an autodidact. He finished school when he was 13 years old, had to go to work as a grocery boy, you know, came from a not very wealthy family. And he was a really curious, intelligent man. And by the end of his life, he had run a successful business and was very interested in... Australian native orchids and the conservation of those and you know that was his kind of passion and he'd left us this house and so we kind of thought that his kind of curiosity and interest and he's obvious you know without ever knowing it he's uh, well from my point of view he he must have been interested in design or why would he have kind of commissioned this wacky place because it you know at the time that house was looked like a spaceship had landed in on the hillside in Dramana, and it shocked a lot of people. So he must have he must have had some interest in contemporary design and and yeah, his kind of level of curiosity and um, bravery. I guess we hope that that kind of that legacy continues through with the house. I'm sure it does. Um, it has been such a benefit for the writing students. I hear that there are hopes that um, art you know, artists can join them and do collaborative works down there mm. and uh, as a thinking space mm. because it's a, a space that uh, sort of um, inspires for that yeah. reason. Yeah. And I just go back to those words, brave, curious, intelligent, mm. which also seem to sum up the Bluestone Collection <laughs> as a group and as, as a collection of works. And it is, um, again, a, a wonderful legacy that um, you've put together. And 
I wonder, what, what for the next 10 years? Is there a bluestone too? Oh, there is there indeed. Is. <laughs> yes, we've, we're six. We're just counting them on our fingers as we walked in. Six pieces for already? bluestone too yeah. already, yes. Yeah. And uh, so this is another 10-year project? Well, we've actually put five years on it. Okay. Um, just because just we weren't so sure about how our energy was going to go. Um, but I sort of feel like, you know, the that the energy is still there for it. So it may go on to 10, but we will reevaluate it five, five years, years and yeah. see what, see where we are then. How exciting. A five-year plan is always good, yeah. especially at the beginning of a decade. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. Well, thank you, Ben and Robin, uh, for talking about the Bluestone Collection donation. The Bluestone Collection will be regularly shown around RMIT campus mm-hmm. and available for research. And the first temporary display of the collection will be at the refurbished RMIT Carlton Library. Uh, and you can see it from mid-March. Thank you so both exciting. for joining me. Thank you.